0: Triune God, the one in whom uh, the image in whom we are created. Lord, I pray that you will help, help to uh, make sense of your word, but also to make glorious application of the wonders you have provided for us in your kingdom for your people. Lord, I pray that you would um, help me to slow down and to help us together to look at, to behold glory. And not rush away from it for something that's less. So Holy Spirit, would you do that? Would you be pleased to do that this morning? That we could gaze on Jesus well. And that there would be glories produced from us for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The wonders of Jesus coming for His people. All of the glorious, amazing goodness of Isaiah 35 is a gift of the cross. Jesus' coming, because we don't separate, and we can't theologically separate the coming of Jesus and and His dying. They go together. If Jesus comes and He doesn't die and rise and ascend, His coming is useless. So Christmas and the cross go together. His coming, His dying, His rising, His ascending have purchased innumerable wonders for us. Every good thing, okay, every good thing, and every terrible, evil thing he turns for our good was purchased in Jesus. He came among, again, innumerable glories, one of which we'll focus on today, a little chapter in the middle of the narrative of the gospel, chapter 35 of Isaiah. He came to make that a reality for us. Isaiah 35 is going to stand and its meaning for us is held in its contrast to chapter 34. Isaiah 34, in fact, is God's judgment on the nations and individuals that make up those nations that have warred against God's God's people. In fact, Isaiah 34 is going to mention by name Edom. Because when his people came out of Egyptian bondage and they began to make their way to the promised land, their own kinfolk, Esau's descendants, Edom, would not let them pass through even for money and warred against them. And we find that in the scriptures, Edom becomes, that historical event becomes a a framework by which God himself will frame what it looks like to be an enemy of God. That it's a people who will not submit to and in fact will oppose and stand against God's ways, God's kingdom and God's people. Nationally they're going to stand for everything that stands against the people of God. In fact, Edom becomes a vehicle by which we see what the dark kingdom of the enemy looks like and acts like toward the kingdom of God. Chapter 34 is going to show us what becomes of every nation and every individual who stands opposed to God and is in cahoots with the enemy. As a matter of fact, Chapter 34 is going to become the framework for the New Testament's teaching on hell. Jesus is going to quote from it. John in Revelation 6, 14, 18, and 19 are going to quote from Isaiah chapter 34. To show us that God is going to deal out what's coming on those who've refused to follow Him and have stood against His people. And that dark chapter now stands next to chapter 35. So you get this dark chapter of what God is going to meet out on those who stand opposed to Him. And then He launches into chapter 35 to show us what becomes of folks who lean into Jesus. Chapter 35 is what Jesus inaugurates in His coming. Chapter 35 is what Christmas brings about. It shows us a glimpse. It gives us a snapshot into what the kingdom of God looks like. Jesus, among, again, many things, mission and coming, dying, rising and ascending, is to purchase for us the good of Isaiah chapter 35. And its presence... And its rising dominance that will crescendo in His return and the final full establishment of the kingdom of heaven here on this earth, in this place forever, face to face. Lewis captured this so well. And again, this is a this is this would be a whole like classroom lesson on our eschatology, the study of last things. Um, but but Lewis, sometimes we don't understand Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia because he's not a He's not a, a rapture, take you to this platonic, ungodly, unbiblical concept of heaven that separates physical from spiritual. And just and and side note, can I rabbit trail for a moment? So much of our spirituality is platonic and gnostic in the Western church. Spiritual, good. Physical, bad. And the reality is biblically, remember we're studying through Genesis, right? Everything God created was good. The physical is not evil and it's not going away. It's going to be restored. Sin will be abolished. The kingdom of heaven is here. And we will be restored and raised to live in it without sin. so when we read Lewis, Lewis feels a little funky to us because his eschatology is different than our platonic Gnosticism. And we read in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or watch the movie, maybe you haven't read the book, you just watch the movie, right? What happens when Aslan returns? Thank you, Miss George, for being honest, being honest. <laughs> when Aslan returns, what happens? It was always winter and never Christmas. But when Aslan returns, what happens? The spell, the curse is broken and spring begins to happen. The thaw begins to take place and over, and Lewis just does a nice job of concentrating it for us in a couple of chapters or a few scenes of a movie. He captures for us what's happening now. That when Christ came and he died and he rose and he ascended, the inauguration of Isaiah 35 happened. And is gradually gaining dominance in the world until full spring will bloom. And so we're living in the thaw. Thirty-four, Isaiah 34 is coming upon those who stand opposed. The white witch and her armies will be Isaiah 34. But those who love Aslan, the king, will be 35. And they will be the ones who reap the reward of walking with him. We're in that phase now, and Isaiah 35 gave the people of God at the time a glimpse of what was coming and gives us a glimpse of what is and will fully be accomplished in time. You you, you there? You tracking? So that's what we're looking at in Isaiah 35. So what I want to do is I kind of want to race through the observations to get to the application today because there's not a lot here that's super complicated. So we're going to plow through it and then we're going to get uh, down in the dirt and roll in it for a few minutes and and what are we supposed to do with this. Observation number one, and it's really a summary of Isaiah 35, verse 1 to 10. It's, it's, It's all of it contrasted with 34. God wants His people to hope and understand that hope and restoration and joy are found in God and His rule not a world system. So so the reason in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God had Isaiah write chapter 34 and then chapter 35 right behind it is so that those who belong to chapter 35 would look back and see, my hope is not there. Which is why the New Testament writers are going to contrast between a world system, chapter 34, and the system of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going to teach us Don't lay up treasure in chapter 34, lay it up in heaven, chapter 35. You remember, every person in the New Testament is preaching from the Old Testament text, right? And so, our first observation is that our hope, our restoration, our joy are found in God and His rule, not a world system, all right? Observation, I have two number twos, because I couldn't decide, Alright, so there's 2 and 2A. Two I just I thought about, well, just make them both 2. But then order took over and said, let's do 2 and 2A two so we can distinguish them. And this is found, uh, Isaiah 35, verse 1 to 2. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Which is a general term of just flora and fauna. Growth taking place. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. God brings life from death. Now here's point number two and two A, One is created order and one is us as people. Okay, and just hang with me. All right. So point number two. God brings life from death for created order and created order responds rightly to God. Now the reason I had trouble distinguishing here is because there, there's the clear reality that he's talking about dirt and land. And the question is, is this metaphorical or is this literal? And I think the answer upon everything I read is yes. It is. It's both. And so I gave you two twos, two and two A. So let's start with two. Two is that what God does in his kingdom is God brings life from death for created order. And created order is going to respond rightly to God. And the reason this is important is because sometimes in our Gnostic concepts of spirituality, we think the physical is not good. And it's it's even... We, we, we show that when we talk about the last things and we talk about not understanding what God's doom or created order and it's all going away and we're going to fly on clouds and float around in this spiritual platonic existence. No. As a matter of fact, the biblical text points us in another direction. I mean, here, he's even talking about the wilderness, speaking about the desert. This dry land is going to become glad again. It's going to rejoice and blossom. Growth will begin to come out of the desert. It will become abundant. And it itself will sing joyfully. Lewis even captures this in his books. I'm sorry, I love children's books. But he captures this when the trees begin to speak and they have life. Lewis isn't making that stuff up. He's coming from the text of the Bible, helping children understand the narrative of the gospel. That there's coming a day, and there currently is, where created order is going to be repaired. Because he's turning it into the kingdom of heaven. And I'll get to why that's important in just a minute. But God even commands the earth in Ezekiel chapter 36 and his promise to bring his people back to the land that he sent them out of. He says, you're not going to bereave my people anymore. So what I want you to do is produce something for them. And the land responds. Why? Because God made dirt. And God made dirt to do good things for his people. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2, right? And so what God's doing is making created order begin to work for His people. So He's telling us even the desert is going to become plentiful. And it's going to rejoice. Paul picks up on this in Romans 8 verse 19 when he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. There's a longing in created order for those who are the elect of God to be shown who they are. Because we're going to be living on it and it's going to produce for us. Now, don't take this too far and become a transcendentalist or the earth is divine. That's not what's happening here. It's simply stating God made created order and he made it to serve us. And sin broke it and he's fixing it. And he's speaking to the land that it's going to be good. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 55, verse 12 and 13. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Next time you're working, you pull up thorns and get stuck. Remember, that won't happen one day. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. There's something in created order that points us to Jesus Christ and His eternal kingdom. Paul will pick up that in Romans chapter 1 when he speaks about how created order points us to God. So God is renewing created order, but 2A, here's the metaphorical component, God renews His people's lives from a lifeless lifeless desert to a place of life and growth. From something not displaying glory to something displaying glory. The reality is sin breaks us. Sin has destroyed man. Man and destroyed humanity the image of God has not been destroyed it is alive and it is broken that spark of God is in every human being but we are broken severely and the promise is that in this kingdom he's going to take the dryness of the human soul and he's going to make it abundant and fill it full of life and he's going to take something that doesn't display glory and put glory on display in it which is, which is one of the reasons the body of Christ is so vital. Is because we are broken vessels that have a glory in it. Paul said, this is put on display in broken jars of clay. So the world sees the powers from God and not us. But in that broken vessel, there's glory. Glory seen. And so God is renewing in the people of God life and bringing life in his people. Point number three, observation number three. In verse three and four. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, look, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. God's people encourage one another to pursue God and to pursue hope in His rule. God's people encourage one another to pursue God and hope in His rule. He says now here to these people, your job is to strengthen the weak hands. Literally, restore them to strength. Make firm, feeble knees. Literally, secure, make firm, assure the feeble. Say to those who have an anxious heart, anxious, concerned, trying to make something happen, worrisome, nervous, say to those who are anxious, be strong, fear not. Why? Why are they to be strong and fear not? Why are we to encourage each other? Verse 4 Behold, look, your God comes. And he comes to take vengeance on the people who oppose you in chapter 34. And he comes to set right and give you everything that was taken away from you in the curse. Recompense. So he says here that the people in my kingdom are to be a people who encourage one another to come after God, to look at Him, to gaze upon Him, look at the glory of God. And that is the means by which we find here that our hands are strengthened. There's firmness in our stance. And anxiety is done away with because we gaze upon Him and we see Him and we see He has us. Observation number four in verse five to seven God's people will now begin to sing for joy because God puts in order what the curse has caused to be out of order. Again, we come back to a component of created order and our engagement in it. I don't want to beat a dead horse here. But I think one of the things God is doing in us as we look through the book of Genesis and study through and as we come to the text, this theme just keeps rising. That our hope in the kingdom of heaven is rich and nuanced and thick and good and present. Not just out there. And that it is physical and it's spiritual. It's all that wrapped up in this glorious bundle of knowing Jesus. Jesus. And he says here in verse 5 to 7 that his people are going to sing for joy because God begins to put things that are broke right. The blind eyes are open. And what do you begin to see when Jesus comes and starts his ministry in the Gospels? He makes blind people see. He opens deaf ears. Listen, when Jesus is doing this stuff, when he inspired Isaiah to write this, Jesus isn't acting opposite of what he's written. And that's why he will say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. For all those people who had heard this text a thousand times in their growing up as good little Jewish boys and girls, they're looking at Jesus going, hey, that's written somewhere. That's written somewhere. And they look and go, hey, Jesus is doing that. Which is why people will follow him. Which is why the disciples will say, you're the Messiah. You're the one that that's said about. And so Jesus begins to set right what's broken. And the result of that is they leap, they sing for joy, water's breaking forth in the wilderness, right? All this good thing is happening in created order and in the hearts of people. Observation number 5, verse 8 to 10. And the, high, and the highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. Holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they will not go astray. Praise God. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. God makes His glorious way into His kingdom obvious. That's You know that's what highway means? It's a way that's high. It's lifted up. As a matter of fact, in the construction of highways now, there's grade on it. It's lifted up. And we can see them. But back in the day, they lifted them up. Because it's not like they paved it, right? With blacktop and yellow lines with glass in it. So it would reflect when the headlights hit it, right? It's a highway. It's a way that's high. So that it becomes obvious to travelers that, oh, there's a road. And in God's kingdom, He makes His glorious way obvious. He makes it clear. We see in this passage that it's good. No uncleanness is there. It's holy. It's righteous. It belongs to His people. And maybe, I hope, maybe you're hearing something from John 14. Here. We don't know where you're going, so how do we know the way? I am the way. I am the highway. I'm who you walk in and walk on to come to the Father. So when the way belongs to us, Jesus is ours. Right? And even if they're fools, they can't go astray. He's got even the dumbest among us. He will keep our feet on the way. This is one of the beautiful doctrines of of grace that we learn in the New Testament is that for those who are in Christ we may slip and fall, but as the psalmist says, he has our hand. And there's no slipping away from those who he has in his iron grip. So even us fools can't get off the way. No lions there. Nothing, no evil, nothing that's going to destroy us. Romans eight twenty eight. all these good things. God is good to do them for us because we are His. God makes His way, His glorious way obvious. His way is good. And, and, I, and I, I note here, this is huge. Uh, in this way, He gives gladness and joy. Um, we use the ESV in multiple translations. I don't care what translation you use as long as you can read it well. But I am a little bit of a snob about translations because I translate. Translate. Um, And the NIV, I think, does a better job here than the ESV. The way the ESV reads, verse 10, The ransom of the Lord uh, shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The way the NIV renders uh, this section, they shall obtain gladness and joy, it says, gladness and joy will overtake them. I think that does a better job of coming from Hebrew into English. And on this glorious, obvious way, God will cause joy and gladness to overtake His people. That's huge. That's huge. So let's dive into Let's roll around the dirt a few minutes. Let's get into some application. Application number one. And this is the big one. This is verse 1 to 10. Because we're not people who belong to Isaiah 34. Right? Fix your eyes firmly on Jesus. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Because that's where life is. There is no life in Isaiah 34. There is no life in the system that stands opposed to Jesus. In fact, it's full of death. And so Jesus will tell us to fix our eyes on Him. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Look to my kingdom, look to my rule. Which is why Jesus came preaching the good news of His kingdom. Nowhere will you find in the Gospels Jesus preaching the good news of your and my individual salvation. It's not there. He preaches the good news of His reign, His rule. It includes our salvation together... But it is bigger than that. It is His reign over all things. And Jesus says, For my people, come and put your eyes on me. Make me a priority. Come after me. Seek me first. Seek my way first. Now, I don't have time to unpack Matthew chapter 6. But I'll come back to this in just a second. You just want to get really down in the dirt and roll around? Try Matthew 6 on for size. How do you seek God's kingdom first? Learn to pray like Jesus taught us to pray. Not for public consumption, but so that Jesus hears. And when you fast, not if you fast, when you do without food, do it privately so I see and not people think you're spiritual. And all your needs, don't go after them. That's what unbelievers do. Come after me and I will see that you get what you need. Ain't none of us in this room doing that right. If that's not true, Jesus isn't God and we're here wasting our time. But if He is God, and Isaiah 35 belongs to us, and we might ought to do something with that, don't you think? If He's more than 8 pounds, 6 ounce baby Jesus in golden fleece diapers then we ought to do something with that. Does that make sense? We don't just celebrate a little baby. He's the reigning king of the universe, the creator of all things, and his coming was to identify and become a faithful high priest who is the warrior king, who's going to pull off Isaiah 35 by himself. Read Revelation 19. Right? Right? And therefore, I think it behooves us to think that if we belong to Isaiah 35, our eyes practically need to get fixed on following Jesus every command to the T. Which is why we say here that discipleship is learned to hear and obey. We know enough. Last Sunday night, I preached up in North Carolina at uh, Red Oak uh, Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters. And, uh, and, and I preached Acts 13, 1 to 12. And I, I spent a lot of time just... Hanging with them over Acts 13, not over Barnabas and Saul, which we have a tendency to worship heroes because Jesus isn't our hero. And Acts 13 1 to 12 is really not about Barnabas and Saul, it's about the church at Antioch and that it has everything it needs because it is the body of Christ. And Barnabas and Saul are just two tiny cogs in a larger body. And they happen to be the ones the Spirit said, Set apart and go. And they heard and they obeyed. Listen, we know enough orthodoxy here in the West. We know the difference. I hope, and and I think there's some pockets where we need doctrinal instruction. But we know enough doctrine that if we did something with it, we would be world changers. You've heard me tell this story before. I told it to them, and, and maybe you haven't. You're maybe a little newer to our fellowship. But my friend, my mentor who's been working in this particular country for years and years and years in a little cafe reading his Bible because he does things like that where he shouldn't and it's illegal to do that kind of stuff. He's doing it. The little waiter sees him doing it, rushes off and he's thinking, oh my gosh, I'm about to get caught. I'm going to get in trouble. He folds it away, puts it in his pack. The little waiter comes back and he's got two pages with two chapters of Philippians on it. And he asks him, you Christian? They go, yeah. You pastor? And he goes, yeah, I pastor too. This dude knew enough from two chapters of Philippians to follow the Lord as a pastor and plant hundreds of churches. We can't spit out one church. And he's got two chapters of Philippians and planted hundreds. There's a fundamental failure to apply what we know here. And we're running about trying to get more spiritual products and better worship and better preaching and better ministry and what we like. And we're picking our favorite off the shelf at Walmart and leaving the leftovers for everybody. And I think God is saying, just hear me and do the things I've told you to do. Now, I'm going to get to something here in just a second. I think that's one of the reasons we don't see the supernatural. Don't hear me say there's not supernatural around us all the time. This is a supernatural world. But we fix our eyes on Jesus and seek His kingdom and and just do what you know. Just do what you know now, right? What's application number one? We got six of them. Hang with me. We'll go faster. Number two, work for the redemption of created order in Jesus' name through engaging your, your domain or your vocation. Bring order where there's chaos. You hear this a lot because it's one of our strategic initiatives. It's one of our values. KDSC defines the values of our church. It's the spiritual DNA that drives our strategy of up in and out, which is radical life, on the mission of discipling nations by being and producing radical followers of Jesus. The way we do that is we don't send professional missionaries. We launch the whole fellowship. The key question for us is what if the church was the missionary? meaning us as individuals who make up the body of Christ and we're going to get this we're going to get do an exercise in just a minute you like, hope don't get tense don't get nervous I'm not going to make you look at somebody and say stuff I just I promise because I'm weirded out by that stuff but we're going to do something but do, do you understand the majesty of being the hand the foot the eyeball the ear of Jesus the Creator? you need to gaze at that a little bit You need to stare at that a little bit and meditate on that a little bit. If that's the case, then Jesus gave us a mission to disciple the nations. And the key by doing that is not mobilizing professionals, but mobilizing all of us to obey Him right where we are and where He opens doors for us. Do you understand there's no such thing as a closed country to a vocation? But they're closed to professional M's. So when you just decide to live in what God made you to be and do, there's no place on this planet you can't do it. And when the church decides to release the body to obey Jesus, we work for the redemption of created order, fixing what's broken in the skill set He's given us. That changes everything from kindergarten all the way through graduate school. Looking at what God made me to be and do, becoming the best at it I can possibly be, and employing that vocation in that societal structure to make disciples on the inside of it. Then you've just released the church to change the world. So just work where you are and what God's made you to be and do today and make disciples. Hear and obey. Here, I don't know what to do. Start making disciples. This gospel is powerful, will save sinners. And I, I said this a couple weeks ago, I'm not going to do it now, but I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands and tell me how many of you have made disciples this year. My hunch is it will be a low number. For us in the West, where's the disciple making? Right? Where are people coming to know the Lord in salvation and growth and grace? From our individual personal task as a member of the body. It's got to be there, right? So, so how, do I, how do I work in created order? How do I see the desert begin to blossom? How do I see streams in the desert? Fix what God has given you to fix in the domain He's given you to fix it in. There's plenty of challenge tomorrow when you clock in, I promise. It's all broke. Bring order to it and make disciples. 2A application. Receive the life Jesus has given us in His kingdom. If you're not in Christ, there's an invitation to Jesus to come and get in Isaiah 35. Get out of Isaiah 34. And it's a free offer. By trusting in the Lord Jesus who made it a reality and putting your faith in Him and turning away from chapter 34, Jesus brings you into His kingdom and makes you a son or daughter. And gives you His Holy Spirit. And will make your life a well-watered garden. But for some of us, life, the reality is we live in this life that is full of deserts. And difficulties, highs and lows. And the promise is for us, Psalm 84, that when we go through those dry places, God is good to make them a place of springs. Because even when we're dry, He's still not done working through us and other people. And so when we're dry, He can give us water. And for many of us, maybe you're in the middle of one of these dry seasons. And it feels like God is distant and He is silent and He is not present. When the offer for us this morning is come and get fresh life. And we're going to work on that in just a second. Number three, be a source of encouragement to each other. Be a source of encouragement to each other. There's nowhere in the Bible that says critique one another, therefore, for the glory of God. It's just not there. That... I'd do a good enough job of that myself for myself. I would say it's one of the banes of my existence is I'm too hard on myself. And the reality is that the, the world, the world system and life, this side of the kingdom being fully accomplished is hard. And we need to be in covenant fellowship where we lift one another up. We need to be plugged into each other in a covenantal fashion. Not come and go for my own pleasure, but committed to you for your upbuilding in Christ. There's so many things I, I want to say here, but I was sharing with the pastor this morning. I don't feel liberty to say that yet. When I come off the sabbatical, I'm going to do like four talks on the church. Sermons, I hate the word talk. I'm sorry, I just did that to you. It's a sermon. It's preach. It's a Bible word. It's okay to say it. But we're going we're going to talk about that a little bit. Because we're broke in how we see the body of Christ in the West. So be committed to one another and build one another up in in these realities. Say these things to each other. Number four, part of the kingdom renewal that we are to enjoy from chapter 35 is God's power as He does signs and wonders. I understand that can take us into a missiological discussion that is maybe uncomfortable, or theologically uncomfortable for us Southern Baptists. But it's okay to believe God for and see Him do supernatural things and be excited about it. And you know, we've maybe had this discussion amongst yourselves: Why do we miss? Why over there do we see supernatural things, and here we don't see supernatural things? I think there are probably a thousand good answers to that question, but here's one I've settled on. Just one I've settled on. I want to share it with you. I think it's the issue of faith. Jesus said a lot of things about faith. Jesus said, as a matter of fact, if we trust him and really believe in him and don't doubt, we were able, metaphorically, to tell the mountain to get up and move and it's got to obey. His point is if you trust in me and ask me for my stuff, there's nothing I won't do for you. I mean, Jesus said that. Did he not? Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to 6, Jesus comes into his own hometown. And because of lack of trust in him, Jesus did not, and the text even says, was unable to do many miracles. I don't know metaphysically how the eternal Son of God was limited in his power because of their unbelief. It just tells us so. If Jesus tells us that by faith in Him, supernatural things happen, and we're not seeing supernatural things, could we draw the line between not believing in Him and trusting Him for those and them not happening? Maybe so. If we do Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Jesus promises to do all the necessary things to give us all we need by His power, not our effort to keep seeking His kingdom. My question is, do we believe Him enough to seek Him first before we seek our own benefit and our own needs? Now, I know some of you are going to walk out of here and go, well, tell me exactly how we're supposed to do that. I can't tell you how you're supposed to do that. I know how I'm supposed to do it. And what I'm supposed to do is not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be in the manual, hearing from the Lord and obeying His word. And He says, don't seek your clothing before you come after Me. Don't seek your food before you come after Me. Don't seek those things first. Unbelievers do that. Come to Me and I will give it to you when you need it. That that makes us all a little nervous because that requires me to do something beyond just say it. There has to be an application to my practice and my words, my efforts. Does that make sense? And could it be, could it just be that if we obey Jesus, we might see supernatural things? Rather than a dry, passionless, loveless, information-driven pursuit of products, could it be that if we heard and obeyed the Lord, He would pour power out on us? So, When we preached through Acts not too long ago, I don't remember, it's been a while. One of the things I said to you, I'm not going to rescue you from the implications of those texts by telling you that's no longer or this. I'm not going to do that because the text won't let me do that. It's giving it to us as normative of the kingdom. Isaiah 35 says this is the kind of stuff that he does. I think God wants Rome to be more than ten to 15,000 people attending church on any given Sunday. And that's just the part-timers. I think he wants to save the dark corners of Rome and Floyd County. But do we trust him enough to go there and say those things, or do just do we just want people that smell like us, have the money we have, and like the things we like? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And so maybe our trust in him is lacking a little bit. Maybe we don't see power because we don't believe. And when you hear me say believe, it's not information; it's action on what we know. Christmas is more than us to have a good, a little feel good fuzzy, it is to remind us that the kingdom has come. And the king has come. And the thaw is taking place. The ice is melting and spring is here. And as agents of his kingdom, we have the power of that in the gospel that we preach. We see here that God has made his way clear and that way is Jesus. How do we see that way clear every day? I feel like a broken record but I can't get away from it. The older I get and the more I read through this thing, the more I'm reminded it's in the manual. It's really there. Every strategy is in the text. You don't have to make it up, it's there. Knowing Him is in the text. He meets you in the text, He speaks to you in the text. And when the text drives your life, He speaks to you when you don't have the text in front of you. And He'll do it in whatever way you need Him to do it in. No limitations. You need to know Him. You need to know his word. And when you know his word, you know the manual, he will give you what you need and he makes his way clear. You need to be in covenant fellowship with each other. One of the ways God speaks to me, we were talking about this week, Dub and, and John and I as we're gathering, as these guys are seeking leadership and growing in leadership in our church. One of the things we discussed as we were talking through that in the coffee shop was that I hear God in fellowship. And covenant fellowship, we're committed to each other, committed on mission together. The Lord speaks clearly in those times like He doesn't for me outside of that. So be in fellowship with one another. Simply act on what you know and trust the Lord to show you what you don't know as you walk by faith. It's not appropriate to not act because we don't know. Act on what you know and He'll show you what you need to know as you keep acting. Finally, God, I'm sorry, I was, I'm was long, man, I'm long-winded. Red Oaks used to like 35, I gave him 50. <laughs> Brody, te- Brody texted me this week and said, uh, he said, man, I, was, I, was, I just got hammered by kettlebells. And uh, what was he, he was doing some kind of workout, kettlebells and oh, a salt bite and your sermon. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm glad it was kettlebells and a salt bite. That's good that you thought my sermon was. He said that positively, so. (laughs) But we need to live in a sober hope and a supernatural joy. A sober hope and a supernatural. This is the last point of application, and this is where we're going to linger for just a moment. Because I want our worship at the end in just a minute to not just be rote. I'm just kind of grossed out with that. I'm done with that. I don't I hate the fact that sometimes we walk in here and it's so heavy that we can't sing. And I don't know the answer to that. I think there are myriads of things we need to figure out, but I just so so just hear me for a second. We need to live in a sober hope and a supernatural joy. I felt I had to I'm just going to stay with my notes here for a second. I felt I had to state this application this way because some of us are either passing through or coming out of dark and hard seasons of life. And perhaps we read passages like this and wonder if any of that is ever going to be a reality for us. Sober, not fanciful hope. Jesus said in John sixteen I've said these things to you that in my joy you may have peace. In this world you're going to have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. That's a sober hope. This is hard. But my hope isn't fanciful. It's real. It's grounded in that Jesus has overcome this. And I will realize it. One day. Somehow. Someway. Sober. Not fanciful. Supernatural joy. Not contrived silliness. Silliness is not joy or happiness. Supernatural joy. Not contrived silliness. That is faithfully seeking God. Not abandoning hope. And anticipating anticipating that gladness and joy will overtake us. And for some of us, that, that, that may be the day we crawl in our grave. For some of us, it may be the surprise of tomorrow morning. But a supernatural joy, not a contrived silliness. So you say, how? How is that going to happen? How is this going to take place? So if you'll indulge me for just a moment, I... I'm going to read you something that really doesn't have anything to do with necessarily the content of what we're being shown here. But how does this happen? I think this happens by us. And I said this earlier. I said I was going to come back to it. By taking time to marvel at, to stare on and gaze at glory and not rush away from it. We're such a hectic pace of life and we're such a demanding phase of life that staring at glory is just not what we do. Heck, we even talk about how screen time is teaching our kids not to be able to pay attention with a long attention span. Do you know we can't stare at glory if we're conditioned to look away? So what I want us to do for just a moment is I want to read you something and go slow and I want you to just stare at it. Because my hunch is what happens in the text as they beheld glory. What did they, what did they do? They responded in gladness and joy. It's because they were seeing something worth responding to. This is Francis Chan, uh, Letters to the Church. I suggest you get this book and read it. It'll wreck you. So if you want to be wrecked, read it. If you don't want to be wrecked, don't read it. Pretty simple. There is no greater honor on earth than to be part of God's church. When was the last time we were all struck by the fact that you're part of Christ's body? Have you ever marveled at this privilege? Ephesians five twenty nine 29-30, For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Every believer needs to stare at those verses long enough to be stunned, really stunned. Paul referred to it as a profound mystery. If achievement is our idol, we won't make time for mystery. If we rush to the next sentence so we can finish this book rather than meditate on the miracle that we are a human being and human beings who are currently joined to God and joined to a God who dwells in unapproachable light. Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Slow down long enough to. The sun is 93 million miles away and you and I are unable to stare at it. We obviously can't touch the sun and live. So how is it possible that we are currently attached to the one who shines brighter than the sun? High angels cover themselves with their wings in his presence. And we are members of his body. Why would someone so extraordinary choose to care for us like he does his own arm? Please tell me you didn't just keep reading. Please tell me you paused for a minute to worship. You can't be that busy. It's no wonder we aren't known as those who rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. We don't make time to meditate on his glories, his mysteries. Isaiah 35 is a a passage full of glory. And likely we'll see it, have a few minutes of fuzzies and we'll pass on. I think the invitation for us in Christmas is to stop and gaze. Stop and gaze. Stop and gaze. So I think if we want our worship to be more than just what we do, We just take a minute and gaze upon those words. And I know that's probably weird. How am I supposed to do that? Well, maybe get your Bible open. Look at it. Read it. Maybe sit there with your eyes closed for just a moment and think on it. And why eyes closed? Because if you're like me, I'm like, squirrel. And so just close your eyes so that you won't be distracted. Think on it. Because my hunch is those passages that talk about gladness and joy are the product of us gazing upon the glories that are all in the text. So here's what I want you to do. Band's going to come on up and be ready. And they're going to play when they play. And which is like as soon as they get ready. Okay? No mystery band, just play. But I want you to now begin to gaze on the beauty of Isaiah 35 and the fact that we are members of his body. And just see if maybe He does something cool in your heart. Would you do that? Ready? Go. Father, we ask that you would do this now. That you would help us to see and savor more of Jesus. That we could gaze on your beauty. And that you would do the supernatural work of churning out of our hearts life. Springs of living water. Holy Spirit, Jesus said you would be a spring of living water in us. So as we think on your beauty, would you